This is Stephen Strang. This is an article I wrote in the January-February 2020 issue of Charisma magazine entitled, A Holy Challenge for a Secular Time. The subtitle is, What Compromise in the Church Could Mean for This Year's Presidential Election. While there has never been a perfect time since mankind sinned way back in the Garden of Eden, it seems things are getting worse, almost as if our cultural decline is happening at warp speed. It's manifesting itself on a global scale, but also through the cultural divide we see so plainly in our own nation. It's as if secularism is the new religion of our nation, hindering the church and its mission at every turn. Yet, as Michael S. Horton, the theology professor at Westminster Seminary, says, quote, Secularization is not something that happens to the church. It is something that happens in the church. Unquote. I agree, and I'm not the only one. In his weekly American Renewal Project newsletter, conservative activist David Lane recently wrote, quote, Western culture that is first driven and is now rushing headlong into apostasy from the triune God is a direct result of the vacuum created as American Christendom relinquished the town square. The disengagement from the culture by Christians left a void in America that is now being filled by everything anti-Christ, unquote. I've been sounding this alarm for years on Charisma's various platforms, including my own Strang Report newsletter and podcast. And it's the reason I wrote a new book called God, Trump, and the 2020 Election. The book is as much about God, His purposes, and what is happening in America as it is about politics. That's because of what is at stake for Christians if this controversial president is not re-elected 10 months from now. As I've written before, conservatives, and especially Christians, will lose an advocate for the freedoms and principles we value. Decisions have consequences, Lane says. The gathering storm engendered by baby boomers and passed on to the millennial and Gen Z generations to sort out will come down hard on the weak-kneed and lily-livered. What Christian minister and cultural theologian Andrew Sandlin styled Sunday go to meet in Christianity has been the prevailing attitude over the last century. It makes no demands on culture, and this attitude exposed the entire West to the risk of a grave cultural and political crisis and perhaps to a collapse of civilization. The last two generations of Americans handed down this attitude to their children and to their children's children. Lane predicts that a battle over the freedom of conscience is coming, and it will be with secular and media luminaries who dominate the spiritual, intellectual, educational, economic, and vocational cultural mountains of influence in America. Big business has become allied with the secular left turning into active combatants, attempting to put the final nail in the coffin of America's once biblically-based culture. Public education already did so about 50 years ago, bringing America's school down to the lowest common denominator, unquote. Over the last century, secularized intellectuals have succeeded in replacing Western civilization's immutable measure for measuring society, the Bible, with laws based on sentiments and feelings. 
As a result, America now finds itself in a quandary. That is much more significant than whether Donald Trump will win in 2020. Assuming Trump gets reelected, as I argue he will, his term ends in 2025. Then what? Where is God in all this? I posed this question to David Barton, and he flipped it around. When you look at where we are now, my question is not where is God, but where are his people? Barton believes the answer is not too good. He has worked closely with researcher George Barna, who has conducted numerous polls on Christian values and beliefs. They polled a sampling of the 384,000 churches and senior pastors in America and learned that 70% of churches and senior pastors say they do not agree with the Bible in its most basic and orthodox teaching. Even so, that means that 30% are what Barna and Barton call, quote, theologically conservative churches. These pastors were asked, do you think the Bible applies to all issues of life? The survey then specifically asked them about 14 areas, including immigration, education, unborn life, traditional marriage, and national economics. An overwhelming majority, between 91 and 97, depending on which one of the 14 issues, agreed that the Bible did address those issues. However, most of them also admitted that they did not address those topics from the pulpit because they considered them political issues. But wait a minute, Barton said rhetorically. You just said that the Bible teaches those issues. And then you say, no, if it's in the news, that makes it political and we won't talk about it. So only a small fraction of pastors are addressing the issues of the culture that the Bible also addresses. It's as if the secularists have persuaded Christians that moral values in the Bible, such as life or marriage, are no longer the purview of the church as they once were, but have become political. But as Barton wisely notes, it's not God's problem, that's our problem. But it's only part of the problem that these statistics show. Only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis, and only 10% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Even among Christians who say they are born again, only 31% have a biblical worldview and only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview. This means we're a nation that doesn't think biblically and doesn't even know what the Bible teaches. Quote, I talk to Christian university presidents and they say the kids coming out of their youth group to their schools, even from Christian schools, don't know the difference between Jonah and Moses, Barton told me. They don't even know the basic Bible stories. A good friend of mine was talking with a Christian young man, and the names Adam and Eve came up, and the young man had no idea who they were. He'd never heard of them. Several years ago, Barton and Barna co-authored a book called U-Turn, which noted that there are more than 70 different moral behaviors in which the Christian authors could not find any statistical difference between Christians and non-Christians. As a lifelong Pentecostal, I've seen the secularized, liberal drift of the church, even in circles once deemed to be biblically conservative. It started with a lifestyle that basically was no different from the secular world. Then it progresses to liberal theology, where they don't believe the Word of God anymore, or even vote in important issues, such as whether same-sex marriage should be legal. Historically, Pentecostals have been different. The holiness background of most Pentecostal denominations call for very strict guidelines of personal behavior and dress and belief. 
there was a lot of focus on church attendance every time the doors were open. Even though many modern-day old Pentecostal churches shy away from these views, which are often now considered legalistic, as a journalist who has covered this segment of the church for years, I haven't seen Pentecostal experience the same sort of liberal drift theologically. Perhaps we have that holiness background to thank for the fact that there have never been resolutions at the annual meetings of any of the mainline Pentecostal denominations over liberalizing the rules on same-sex marriage or abortion. But another form of compromise, liberalism and just plain apathy, affects the Pentecostals, and it may be the worst of them all. Few Pentecostal or charismatic pastors actually preach against sin, even if they don't change their theology to embrace it. They just leave it alone and focus on other things such as church growth or evangelizing or discipling new converts or even missions giving. They like to preach on faith, and there's nothing wrong with that, but many of the sermons just make you feel good when you go home. Having a great church service where you feel the power of God is important, but today's services rarely mobilize the members to change culture or turn out the vote in crucial elections. In one area, Pentecostals are ahead of most of the other Protestant denominations because their churches are more integrated. In fact, the Assemblies of God has grown in membership for the past 17 years, mainly because of the growth of Hispanic and African-American members. Latinos, both in South America and in the U.S., seem to embrace the passion and excitement of the Pentecostal experience. If you know your history, you know that Pentecostalism grew out of the Azusa Street Revival, which was led by a black preacher named William Seymour, the son of former slaves. At its start, Pentecostalism was more integrated than other forms of Protestant Christianity, and racial diversity is still common in Pentecostal churches today. Pentecostal forms of worship, where people shout, lift their hands, and praise God exuberantly, came from the black church, not from the formalism of the denominations the European immigrants brought with them. Many white charismatic churches in America have a sizable percentage of black members who feel comfortable with the exuberant worship experience. But drill down and you will find the same dichotomy within these integrated congregations as in the wider culture. The white congregants tend to be Republican, and the black members tend to be Democrat. Why is this? In my book, I devote an entire chapter called Black Americans, Democrats, and Trump to explore why African Americans in this country vote Democratic in huge numbers. Suffice it to say that for the past half century, Democrats have supported a few key issues important to black Americans. These include civil rights, prison reform, and governmental aid for poor communities. As a result, I've been told by black Christian leaders that the black community overlooks the faults of Democrats, including many liberal policies. In fact, studies have shown that while black Christians align with white conservative Christians on most moral issues, they still vote Democrat by huge percentages. On the Republican side, the GOP supports or at least gives lip service to some of the policies important to white conservative Christians, like abortion and same-sex marriage. So white Christians likewise vote Republican and overlook the things they disagree with, such as the way Republicans say one thing at election time and govern another way, supporting big business at the expense of the little guy and dragging the war into meaningless wars. 
Pentecostals used to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit and emphasize speaking in tongues is often relegated to services later in the week or small groups or classes. And though Pentecostalism came out of the holiness movement of a century and a half ago and was known for its do's and don'ts when I was growing up, rarely will you hear a sermon on holiness these days. Barton also grew up Pentecostal and bemoans the modern church's emphasis on conversions rather than discipleship. Right now, it's all about converts and getting people to say the sinner's prayer, Barton told me. Well, I can have a parakeet recite the sinner's prayer. That doesn't mean the parakeet is a Christian. We've moved away from discipleship, and as a result, we no longer see people thinking or behaving the right way. We're not discipling them. The real question is, how are they living? What's their behavior? Are they producing fruit worthy of repentance? There is a big emphasis on converts rather than on disciples, and the irony is that for 2,000 years, we have let the professionals do the work of the ministry. A few months ago, I made this point in my perspective column in Charisma Magazine by quoting Barton, quote, We've got missionaries, evangelists, and pastors, and they do the work of the ministry. But the Bible says that we are to teach ordinary saints to do the work of the ministry, he said. So if every Christian made it their objective to bring one person to Christ this year and then disciple them to think biblically at the end of the year, twice as much of the world, 64% would be Christian. And if we did that again the next year, we could have the entire world Christian in only two years if every Christian just discipled one other person. Discipleship means teaching and modeling how to live a life set apart from the secular, godless culture. That set-apart life is what we used to call holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1.16. But I've observed, and Barton agrees, that few of us are teaching holiness anymore. We are not finding people confronting wrong behavior, saying this is morally right or morally wrong, Barton told me. Few pastors are doing this. And not only are we not hitting the holiness aspect, we are largely don't have the fear of God anymore. There's no sense of having to account to God for our behavior, our beliefs, our thoughts, all things the Bible teaches. So we have now become a user-friendly kind of church. We don't want you feeling bad about things. We don't want you to radically change your life. Look at John 6 where Jesus was offending the crowds. Many left him. His disciples said to him, This is a hard teaching. Who can bear it? He looked at them and asked, Are you guys leaving me too? They answered, No. We'll stay with you. You've got the bread of life. But man, this is really hard stuff. No American church I know of today is being accused of teaching hard stuff and driving people away with true disciples remaining in the church to be taught anymore. Unquote. I agree. And this is part of the problem we face. As the culture declines and becomes more and more hostile to Christian and biblical principles, it boils down to a failure of the church that there's no teaching on holiness that would change people's life and then motivate them to go out and change the culture. The contemporary self-effacing church culture hidden behind the walls of the meeting place is not up to Christianity's standards. A different type of church will be required for America to be born again. Budgets, buildings, and bodies and seats can't be the theological focus of America if it is to survive. Christians operating in the public square must be empowered by wisdom from above. Barton said, 
Get involved where you live, with your family, business, schools, and local government. And let's look at how Christ applies to all of these areas. That's where I think the church is really failing. It's like David Lane once wrote, quote, Jesus paid not only for the price of our souls and eternal salvation, but to redeem everything that is lost, people, business, education, and government. And there is nothing the devil can do to reverse it. That is, if believers will but engage. Getting the church to be the church is necessary if we are to turn the tide in the culture. In this election year, I believe that means getting involved politically, and I make an impassioned plea to Christians to understand what's at stake if Trump loses. Not only will the other side roll back many of the positive changes he made, rolling back regulations, appointing the right judges to the bench, supporting Israel and standing for religious freedom, but we may see laws hostile to Christians implemented. My book makes the case for why Trump, controversial as he may be, must be reelected, but also why he might lose if evangelicals and other conservatives are complacent and stay home on election day, or if we let the other side get away with election fraud and they steal the election. I also make the case for what the Bible says about how to treat the immigrant and what the Bible says about borders. But more importantly, an entire section is about the spiritual dimension of this election. I describe some of the prophecies about the direction of our nation and how God has raised up Donald Trump. And I devote an entire chapter to Donald Trump and spiritual warfare. We must remember that this is not politics as usual. Because as the Bible says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. That's Ephesians 6. 12. This is something the secular press doesn't cover because they don't understand or agree with it, and even many Christians don't understand this dimension. Yet, we believe we have spiritual power against these spiritual forces. The book ends with a call to prayer and action. We must pray as never before with many of the ministries that are calling for intercessory prayer, but we must also remember to get out and vote and encourage everyone in our spheres of influence to vote. That's what I'm doing, using every means at my disposal, not only writing this article and the book it's based on, but doing podcasts, newsletters, media appearances. This is my third book about the president, and I believe it's the most important. I hope you will read it, not so I can just sell another book, but to open your eyes to the issues and to enlist you in the battle for our nation. The time has come to get involved to pray, to vote, and to get others to do the same.